Hello and welcome to another movie episode of The Rye Cooter Story, a podcast dedicated to the music, the movies, and career of slide guitar master Rye Cooter. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster, and lifelong Rye Cooter fan from Berlin, Germany, bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. Today we discuss Cooter's second soul foray into the world of cinema, a relatively unknown film, but one that is highly regarded among those in the know. The British Guardian even called it a masterpiece. The film in question is 1981 Southern Comfort, Cooter's second collaboration with action champion Walter Hill. The movie takes us deep into the swamps of the American South and into the world of the Cajun hinterland. For Cooter, it was a leap from the Wild West directly into the present and therefore a completely new challenge. As we will see, he mastered it with flying colors. But beware, there will be spoilers ahead. If you haven't seen Southern Comfort yet, you might want to watch it first. So here we go. The Long Riders had been a commercial disappointment, but it did nothing to damage Walter Hill's reputation. Ry Cooter's fascinating soundtrack, which literally breathed the color of the time, was beyond reproach anyway. It immediately established him as a highly interesting new supplier of authentic film music. For Hill and Cooter, it was the beginning of an ongoing collaboration based on mutual respect and similar tastes. Cooter realized that he and Hill were on the same wavelength, and that he was made for working with moving pictures. He said, I found that I could think in images because I didn't care about stories at all. I just wanted to see something start to happen in terms of visual rhythm, the look of light, faces, to let your mind wander. Walter Hill had written the first draft of Southern Comfort in 1976. The movie was originally part of a development deal that he and his producing partner David Geiler had with 20th Century Fox. However, the studio decided to go with another project. This other project was set in a completely different world and time, but was surprisingly similar in structure. The 1979 sci-fi shocker Alien, also produced by Hill and Geiler, and directed by Britain's Ridley Scott, became a worldwide hit and launched one of the most successful franchises of all time. Like Southern Comfort, it follows the gradual decimation of a teen in the face of an unfamiliar and overwhelming enemy. But Hill wanted to make his own survival story, and he wanted to make it in Louisiana. A few rewrites later, he found an independent production company to finance the project. Beginning December 1, 1980, he shot the movie for three months on location in the Cattle Lake area on the Texas-Louisiana border. Keith Carradine, returning from the Long Riders and Powers Booth, were cast in the lead roles, with Fred Ward, T.K. Carter, Peter Coyote, and Brian James in important supporting roles. It was a difficult shoot, with very hard locations to get to, long hours in the water, and little time to get the shots before the cameras were about to sink into the swamp. But as Walter Hill said, If you choose to go make a movie in a swamp in the middle of winter, you probably deserve what you get. Southern Comfort is set in 1973, just before the end of the Vietnam War. 
The movie is about U.S. soldiers getting lost in a hostile jungle in more ways than one, so it makes sense to understand the story metaphorically. Indeed, there were few reviewers at the time who didn't see Southern Comfort as at least marginally a parable for American defeat in the Far East. Hill was aware of this possibility from the beginning, but he always wanted his film to be understood as nothing more than the struggle for survival of some members of the Louisiana National Guard during a weekend exercise. The bayous of Louisiana, the home of a little understood group of Americans. They're a peaceful people as long as they're left alone. Everybody out of the truck! The National Guard on weekend maneuvers. In 48 hours, they'll be home with their families. There's only one problem. We live back in here. This is our home. They've crossed the boundary into a territory where they don't belong. We ran into some people that are real weird and I think maybe they're trying to kill us. They violated laws they never knew existed. Somebody figure out where the hell we're going and do it quick. Gotta go east to go north. Damn, damn. And the farther they go, the closer they get to nowhere. I'm gonna do it. But I'm gonna fight my way out of here. In January 1981, Cooter flew to the Cajun country of southwestern Louisiana. Hill had persuaded him to go there to record part of the soundtrack for the film. It was the kind of trip Cooter loved to take. Though it lasted only a few days, he was able to play with some of the region's finest musicians and immerse himself in the centuries-old French-American traditions that still prevailed there. On the set, he met local accordion player Mark Savoy, who appeared as a musician in the film under Cooter's musical direction. Same goes for 54-year-old fiddle player Dewey Balfa, at the time perhaps the most famous Cajun musician in the world. Balfa, who was responsible for the Cajun tunes in the film's final act, told Rolling Stone magazine, Rye was something else not only as a musician, but as a human being. To tell you the truth, I lost my brothers Will and Rodney in an auto accident a few years ago. I thought I never again would make a recording session and be in the same mood as when Rodney played rhythm guitar for me. But Rye made me feel like I was back in those days. As much as I like other music, country, bluegrass, some rock and roll, I can't get into the grooves because I'm too deeply rooted in my own music. But Rye can break away from his regular music. He just fell right in with us and lifted the group. I played like I hadn't played since my brother died. After filming was completed, Cooter set to work on the score. Years later, he told Film Score Monthly, Because my own musical fantasies and Walter Hill's film fantasies are in sync, it's possible for me to score a film like Southern Comfort without understanding the first thing about its environment. All I had to do was think about this weird swamp and the Cajun people that nobody knew about. I had to imagine what they were going to sound like, and I figured on the style of John Lee Hooker's music. Cooter explained his working method to Jonathan Rowney for his book, Celluloid Jukebox. Me and Walter have all the systems, and when he starts a film, he shows me the script, which I don't like to read, and I know that I can't visualize it from the printed page, and he'll change it anyhow. And then by and by you go out to the set, or you look at some footage, and then you say, Oh, I see, and I'll know where this thing's going to go and how it'll work. The Southern Comfort soundtrack is decidedly minimalist. If you subtract the end credits, there's little more than 15 minutes of Cooter's music, and a considerable part of it can hardly be described as music, 
but rather as atmospheric sound. Cooter worked on the entire soundtrack for no more than a week, according to an interview with Uncut Magazine. This answers the question of why a soundtrack album was never released. Even if the Cajun pieces from the final scene had been included, it would have been impossible to fill a classic long player with all of it. But fortunately, the three most important Cooter tracks are included on the compilation album Music by Ry Cooter. The only thing missing is the end credits music, which is an interesting variation of the title theme. We'll listen in on it later. The small band Cooter assembled for the score is also minimalist. It consists of Jim Dickinson on piano, Milt Holland on percussion, and Mark Savoy on accordion. An important and rather surprising addition was the Japanese musician Keizumetsu. He not only assisted Cooter as a consultant, but also added an exotic element with the shakuhachi, a Japanese bamboo flute. Born in Tokyo in 1954, Matsu studied ethnic arts in Los Angeles after traveling in Europe and India in the mid-1970s. He returned to Tokyo to teach educational theories and was still in the early stages of his musical career when he worked on Southern Comfort. He later contributed to major Hollywood films including Willow, Legends of the Fall, and Jumanji. In 1982, he contributed to Cooter's next solo album, The Slide Area, and in 1985 to Cooter's soundtrack for Alamo Bay. Years later, he made a great album with David Lindley called Wheels of the Sun. At first glance, a Japanese flute does not seem to have any place in the swamps of the South. When asked about his inspiration, Cooter told Musician Magazine in 1985, It's the samurai aggression sound. When I saw that telescopic shot of the soldiers running around the corner, all I could think of was, here comes the 47 Samurai. Why not? What are you going to blow them in with? Not a big piano chord out there in the swamps so you blow them in with a flute. That flute seems to find a natural sound and exaggerate it. If you overblow it, you get that burst of air and it becomes mournful at the end. It's a shriek, but it's natural. Plus, the bottleneck, which is a bowing back and forth sound, is very much like a shakuhachi note. It's a warble, and you put them together in unison and get this terrific harmonic rub that's hard to achieve. At that point, you have made a new sound, and it seems to work on film. As in The Long Riders, Cooter uses his music very sparingly in Southern Comfort. But unlike in the elegiac story of the James Younger Brothers, this time he does not work with finished songs and real music sources, but composes genuine film sounds. We have to wait a full seven minutes for the first sounds to be heard, until the squad embarks on their seemingly harmless weekend maneuver. Then we hear Cooter's title theme. The title sequence gives us a first impression of the swamp's impenetrability. Bizarre cypress trees, covered with Spanish moss, rise out of the water. Nature seems cold and colorless, a strange, forbidding place that refuses to be entered. Cooter's restrained slide guitar sounds seem to rise directly from the swamp, quietly simmering and threatening. The Delta Blues is there, but so is John Lee Hooker's tough booty. Matsu's flute is integrated very unobtrusively, 
but gives the theme an exotic touch. Metsu's Asian flavor is much more dominant in the aptly titled canoes upstream. The men have borrowed three boats, apparently belonging to local fishermen, and are paddling across the swamp. The music is downright delicate, a gentle, tentative interplay of guitar, percussion, accordion, and flute. One of the soldiers has an idiotic idea. He shoots blanks from the water at the locals who appear on the shore. The morbid fun immediately turns bitterly serious. The locals shoot back with live ammunition and kill the staff sergeant. From then on, things go rapidly downhill for the squad. It's a situation reminiscent of the 1972 Backwoods classic Deliverance. The men fight their unseen pursuers, the swamp, and each other. After 20 minutes, the water is almost literally up to their necks. With no real leader and no direction, they stumble through the swamp. Hill cuts together their conversation in double exposures, accompanied by Cooter's blues guitar. Ducky, you were sure one dumb son of a bitch firing that machine gun. Yes, Ducky. Nobody gave you an order to fire. Look, there's only a goddamn joke. The only blanks. Forget it. Forget it. Shit. This moron gets somebody killed and you say, forget it. Yeah, I got something for you boys. Remember, Stucky wasn't the one that shot Poole. The big thing is that after we get Poole back to headquarters, we come back and get these cages. Oh, hell yes. Yeah, all we got to do is swim a couple of hundred yards and then find them back in that forest. After we've done that, then we can capture them and shoot them with our blanks. From that point on, the film follows the same pattern almost without exception. Dialogue and action scenes remain free of music, while the scenes in which the men wander through the swamp are accompanied by Cooter's atmospheric sounds. The music consists mostly of variations and modifications of the title theme. The harder the path, the more plaintive the blues. Listen to how the music score and the sounds of the jungle merge into a single entity.
At one point, Cooter ingeniously combines his favorite dark was the night motive with Matsu's shakuhachi. Well, you know how it is. Down here in Louisiana, when we don't carry guns, we carry ropes. Archie Cola's moon pies. We're not too smart, but we have a real good time. Like Hills, the Warriors, and Alien, the story follows the Ten Little Indians principle. It's the same system we know from slasher films, and in that respect, Southern Comfort is a true horror movie. It's about who dies and how, and who might survive to the end. And it's about the many ways you can die, in an ambush, at the hands of a hated comrade, or in a diabolical trap. At one point, even the swamp literally swallows one of the National Guard. You could almost say he didn't deserve any better. And the deeper the group gets into trouble, the more abstract the music becomes. As the men walk past a row of hanged rabbits with their bellies cut open, the threat that emanates from this symbol is reinforced by dark, now completely abstract sounds. Then there is Swamp Walk, one of the three tracks that are on the music by Ry Cooter album. As the title suggests, it's another transitional piece and another collaboration between guitar and flute. Here, Cooter plays completely in the style of John Lee Hooker. This is the sound of the swamp in the early morning after a long and anxious night. It's still cold, and mist rises from the damp water. After about 75 minutes, there is indeed an action scene accompanied by music. Sergeant Casper, played by Les Lamb, runs in extreme slow motion right in front of the gun barrels of the locals. His death in a hail of bullets is as senseless and inevitable as any other casualty in this strange war. There is no more cooter music in the final act of the movie. Instead, when the last two surviving soldiers finally reach the supposed civilization, 
It is similar to the saloon scenes in The Long Riders. The music is played live by a local band. The aforementioned Dewey Balfa can be seen and heard. The scene in the small Cajun village is the absolute highlight of the movie, a superbly edited film within a film. There is a fey do in progress, a Cajun dance party where people drink, eat, and have a great time. Without going into detail here, because it is not part of our subject, it is truly masterful how Walter Hill deals with the clash of the two cultures and plays with the threat. Is it just a harmless celebration? Are our two survivors finally safe? Or are they already trapped while the seemingly innocent locals sharpen their knives to kill them like suckling pigs? In the end, this much can be revealed. The slasher movie turns into real folk horror. As promised, let's now listen to the end credits music. It's a more somber variation of the title theme, with a little more emphasis on piano and percussion, and a strong finale. When Southern Comfort was released in the fall of 1981, it was a so-called negative pickup by 20th Century Fox, so it was an independent production distributed by a major studio. But as Walter Hill explained, The studios, especially in those days, tended to treat those like the stepchildren in 19th century novels, so they didn't spend a great deal of money trying to get us launched. The movie didn't cost too much, so it wasn't like it was some huge financial disaster but I think the subject matter is just not widely appealing. While audiences were generally unimpressed with the film and its dark subject matter, it became quite popular among Cajuns because it managed to capture and harness the mystical sense of cultural pride of Southern Louisiana. Plus, critics wrote mostly positive reviews. Roger Ebert, for example, emphasized the metaphorical level. The movie's approach is direct, and its symbolism is all right there on the surface. From the moment we discover that the guardsmen are firing blanks in their rifles, we somehow know that the movie's going to be about their impotence in a land where they do not belong. And as the weekend soldiers are relentlessly hunted down and massacred by the local Cajuns, we think of the uselessness of American technology against the Viet Cong. In the years that followed, the film slowly gained a certain amount of cult status. Critic David Graham wrote, Southern Comfort is a dynamically exciting experience powered by a lean, prickly script, as well as edgy performances from an excellent ensemble. 
Ride Cooter's menacing but gorgeous pedal steel score and the burnished cinematography are the icing on the cake. The iconic gangs of the Warriors may ensure that it remains Hill's best-loved movie, but there's definitely more to savor with Southern Comfort, and it's arguably his most impressive work. Writing for cult film freaks, James M. Tate added, One of the most important elements is heard, not seen. Ry Cooter grooves a moody slide guitar soundtrack that feels part of the location, a misleadingly laid-back sound that fits the film's ironic title, not the dire situation. Even though the movie was a slight disappointment, much like The Long Riders, Cooter could only benefit from it in the end. His minimalist score proved him to be a sensitive and imaginative film musician. He thus expanded his musical portfolio immensely. So far, he had been a brilliant adept of pre-existing material. Now it turned out that he was also a composer, and a great one at that. No wonder the next movie was already waiting for him. But more about that in the next episode. So before we wrap up, let's focus on another 1981 release that takes us right back to Cooter's early session days. It was a re-release of Steve Young's Seven Bridges Road, but it was, at least in parts, a very different album. Steve Young was born in 1942 in Noonan, Georgia, into a family of sharecroppers. His father was Native American. From an early age, Young loved Southern music and wanted to be a singer, songwriter, and musician. In the early 60s when he followed a folk duo to Los Angeles to play on their album, that dream began to come true. His playing brought him to the attention of other musicians. One of the first to discover him was longtime Cooter collaborator Van Dyke Parks. With his help, Young became a session player and played in several bands. His first album, released in 1969, was a commercial failure, and Young turned his back on the music scene for a while. Not much later, however, he was approached to sign with Reprise, where he was paired with Rye Cooter. Together with Andrew Wickham, Cooter was to produce his first single for the label. The song chosen was Bob Dylan's Down in the Flood, retitled Crash on the Levee. After being recorded, the single was released in 1970. Despite a barnstorming performance by Young and a guest appearance by Cooter, the single failed to make the charts. This may have been the reason the song was not included on Young's next album, Seven Bridges Road. Released in 1972, it was named after Young's only hit, which was covered by everyone from Rita Coolidge, Joan Baez, and Dolly Parton to the Eagles. The royalties from the song alone allowed Young to live an independent life. Nearly ten years after the album's release, the rights to Seven Bridges Road were purchased by Rounder Records. The obvious step for them was to release the previously unreleased songs from Young's L.A. and Nashville sessions. They added Down in the Flood, among others, and allowed Young to re-record Seven Bridges Road. The album caused a minor stir. Rounder put what little muscle they had into promoting it, but it did little in terms of sales. But the song, with Cooter on both electric and acoustic bottleneck guitars, is a real gem.
And that brings us to the end of episode 14 of the Rye Cooter story. I hope you like the way we approach Cooter's films. I think it's important not only to discuss the music, but also to provide context for the film as a whole. As you probably noticed, I really enjoy doing that. As a former film critic and author of several books on cinema, I can combine two passions here. Fortunately, Cooter had a lucky hand in choosing his projects. The material is always at least interesting, but mostly great, and they are further enhanced by the music. This is certainly true of Cooter's next movie, The Border from 1982, a subject that was made for him, a story set on the border between Texas and Mexico, in the land of chicken skin music, so to speak. Of course, a reunion with Flaco Jimenez is inevitable, but also with John Hyatt. We can hardly wait. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the podcast, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to Patreon. As always, you can find all the links in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and see you in two weeks.